Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Support network U.S. President Joe Biden is in Israel to show that he backs the country in its fight against Hamas. But our guest says what will happen after this war is not at all clear. A voice in the wilderness. We'll hear from an opposition member of the Knesset who condemns Israel's attack on the Gaza Strip, saying that just as nothing justifies Hamas's actions, nothing justifies the actions Israel is taking in response. Snap judgment. Dozens of parents in the U.S. are suing Snapchat because their children died after taking drugs they bought through the app. One father tells us about losing his son and alleges the platform is a, quote, open-air drug market. She vows they'll exchange vows. India's highest court rules against legalizing same-sex marriage, but one of the petitioners in the case says she sees progress despite the loss, and the fight's not over yet. Grasping at straw, ongoing work in London has triggered an unusual old bylaw which requires workers to dangle a bale of hay off the Millennium Bridge. Mm, Sounds normal. Mm -hmm. And a roo awakening when Mick Maloney's dog was attacked by a seven-foot-tall kangaroo. The Australian man took matters into his own hands and the kangaroo as well. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that never messes with a bouncer. Today, U.S. President Joe Biden made his support for Israel plain. In a speech from Tel Aviv, he condemned the October 7th attack by Hamas and noted that it was the most deadly day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. The world watched then. It knew. And the world did nothing. We will not stand by and do nothing again. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. President Biden's visit to Israel follows a blast at a hospital in Gaza that killed scores of people seeking help and shelter there. Hamas blames Israel. Israel blames an errant missile fired by Islamic Jihad, which the group denies. The U.S. president mourned the lives lost in that attack while backing Israel's version of events, and he pushed Israel into agreeing to allow limited humanitarian aid into Gaza. Stephen Cook is a Middle East expert with the Council on Foreign Relations think tank. We reached him in New York. Stephen, at the end of this trip, what would Joe Biden need to accomplish for this to be a success in his mind? Well, I think the president's goals here are to, one, and I think he feels very strongly about this, is to demonstrate American solidarity with the Israeli people. The second goal was to, in the process of demonstrating his solidarity with Israelis, urge the Israeli government to agree to allow humanitarian aid in through the Rafah crossing with Egypt, which he accomplished. And the third, something we won't know until the days ahead, is how the president has shaped what the Israelis are going to do on the ground. How do you think yesterday's deadly explosion at the hospital in Gaza City, how does that change that this this meeting, but also the situation, the calculations here? Well, I think the humanitarian concerns remain the same. Obviously, the uh, Gaza explosion in which, according to the U.S. government, and there's no reason to believe otherwise, has pinned on Islamic Jihad. I think the entire situation speaks to the dire humanitarian situation that Gazans are facing. And one of the things that the president was very concerned about was making sure that Israelis, as well as other regional powers, did what they could to uh, help innocents in, in Gaza. It may seem like little given the military operations that the Israelis are conducting and the kind of aerial bombardment they've been engaged in. 
But nevertheless, this was a priority for the president and his administration. Biden did speak later in that speech about Palestinians, uh, Palestinians in Gaza in particular. You mentioned the aid pledge and the the fact that Israel will allow some humanitarian relief to get in through Egypt. Um, that's that's an important distinction there. But how do you think that might affect how Palestinians and their supporters, who are very critical of the U.S. stance and what what Biden has said so far, um, even calling him too pro-Israel, how do you think that that will affect things, if at all? I don't think they'll affect things at all. I, I think that anything that the president says about Islamic Jihad's responsibility for what happened at Ahli Hospital, people will not believe. And I think that the president has positioned himself as pro-Israel. So uh, it is important that he is able to work with the Israelis and others to ensure that aid does get through. But people are going to believe he's pro-Israel because he is pro-Israel. Islamic Jihad, as you know, continues to, to deny uh, any involvement. The Israeli government, the IDF, uh, says the same thing to those who, who accuse them of doing it. Do you, do you think we will ever get clarity on, on this issue? I think that if the president of the United States says that he has information that it was Islamic Jihad, I, I think we should believe the president of the United States rather than Islamic Jihad. In terms of the concerns that many people have about a, the potential for a wider conflict here, you wrote... Quote, Gaza is a trap. This will surely set back normalization in the region and much else. Victory to the Iranians. Can you explain? Well, just the fact that if the Israelis do go into the Gaza Strip in ways that some expect that they will, with a fairly significant ground invasion, that there is a good chance that they will get caught there. This is not an easy place for militaries to operate, as the Israelis already know. And getting caught in a grinding urban conflict that pins the Israelis down and weakens them is something that rebounds to the benefit of both Hamas as well as one of its patrons, the Iranian government. What message do you think, as that ground invasion, the potential for that still looms, what message do you think President Biden may have had for for Benjamin Netanyahu as they sat down to talk? I I think that his message was that the Israelis need to be careful about what they're getting themselves into, that in the days following the terrorist attacks on Israelis, that the Israeli war cabinet had vowed to destroy Hamas, and that that portends a very significant, long military operation in the Gaza Strip with very uncertain outcomes. And there's no real candidate that would step in in a power vacuum left by destroying Hamas. And so what would the Israelis do with the Gaza Strip? And the president had kind of nodded at this in his 60 Minutes interview, in which he talked about his opposition to what would essentially be a reoccupation of the Gaza Strip. Do you think there's any chance that Israel, Israeli forces may not go in on that ground invasion at this point? Well, I think it's fairly clear that they will not be able to achieve the goals that they've set for themselves without a ground invasion. Uh, Hamas fighters, Hamas leaders are deep underground much of the aid that has gone into the Gaza Strip has been diverted by Hamas to build bunkers and tunnels under the Gaza Strip. And they're so deep that even bunker-busting munitions have not reached all of it. So I think it's certainly the case that there will be, at least for some period of time, uh, significant numbers of ground forces in the Gaza Strip. And that's where the danger really is for the Israelis, is that they don't get caught in long-term urban Warfare. I think the U.S. military has an unhappy experience with this in Iraq, and it no doubt is being communicated to the Israelis about what to avoid as they embark on this mission. At the end of his speech, as you likely heard, Biden spoke of good days to come, as he put it. Do you see any clear path to good days now? That's uh, that's Uncle Joe trying to make everybody feel better, but I don't really see uh, prospects for better days, at least in the immediate future, for Israelis or Palestinians. How do you see this ending? Well, I think there's a lot of a significant amount of bloodshed that's going to happen before it ends. And I wish I knew how it would end. I, I don't have those kinds of mm -hmm. uh, abilities to prognosticate into the future, which could be weeks or months uh, ahead. But the problem here is, is that there does not seem to be a sense of what would happen if and when the Israelis achieve their goals. And that's, I think, what makes this so difficult. And none of the choices are good. In fact, most of the choices are impossible choices. Stephen, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Stephen Cook is with the Council on Foreign Relations Think Tank. He's in New York.
Snapchat markets itself as a tool for helping users live in the moment. But dozens of parents in the U.S. have launched a lawsuit against Snapchat, saying their kids died after taking drugs they bought through the app. Today, many of those parents were at a California court for a hearing into the case, which claims the social media platform's features make it easy for drug dealers to target minors and young adults. Sam Chapman is one of the plaintiffs. His 16-year-old son, Sammy, died in 2021 after buying fentanyl through Snapchat. We reached Mr. Chapman in Los Angeles. Sam, what's the message you and the other parents wanted to send in court today? Snapchat is an accomplice to murder, and we want them held accountable, and we want them to protect our children from the dangerous content that's on their platform. The dangerous content that you're alleging Snapchat has on its platform is access to drugs. But to dig into the specifics of the lawsuit, it calls Snapchat, quote, an open-air drug market and alleges that drug sales on this platform were, quote, the foreseeable result of the designs, structures, and policies Snap chose to implement to increase its revenues, end quote. What evidence do you have to back that up? So Snap has a number of features which are very dangerous. They start off uh, counting the number of snaps that you do in an effort to addict the children. And then once the children are addicted to the platform, they are subject to a free flow of dangerous information. Uh, All you have to do is go type in the uh, plug emoji on Snap and you will get drug dealers offering you their wares. And what makes this so dangerous is that we're in the era of fentanyl poisoning, and we have 300 people a day dying from fentanyl poisoning, and Snapchat is one of the main marketplaces for it, and it's got children all over the platform. And our family suffered the loss of our beautiful 16-year-old boy as a result. I'm so sorry for your loss. It must be hard to keep telling this story, but I know you want to get your message out there. What can you tell us about what happened to Sammy? So we were at home on Super Bowl Sunday during the pandemic. The one benefit we thought of this horrible lockdown scenario was that our kids were safe in our home, in their room. I brought him his lunch, told him I love him. He said, I love you too, Dad. And about an hour and a half later, my youngest son found him dead on the floor. Oh, started screaming for us. My wife and I ran. I started chest compressions and tried to resuscitate my boy and failed. The uh, EMTs showed up and they tried to resuscitate him and failed. And that was the end of our happiness. I'm so sorry, Sam. How is your other son doing? He just started as a freshman at Chapman University. We put a lot of energy into healing and giving him the life he deserves. He's sober, doesn't do drugs or alcohol, uh, which isn't easy as a as a college freshman, but he's intent on not having the lesson of, of our son's life visited on him. Parents, of course, particularly th- these days, uh, find themselves having to have conversations about drugs with their children. Did you have any idea that that he could be ordering drugs on Snapchat or or social media at all? No, we had no idea that you could buy drugs on Snapchat. Mm -hmm. We we thought the thing we had to worry about was them doing nudie pics. And so we did did warn our children about that. Um, But we had no idea that a drug dealer could reach out to our son and offer him this colorful drug menu, which said at the bottom that he delivers, and he delivered a lethal dose of fentanyl to our home like a pizza. Snap Inc. says it can't comment on active litigation, but does say in a statement to us that they are working hard to stop dealers from abusing our platform, end quote. They also say they work with law enforcement to hold dealers accountable. Is that enough in your view? If it were true, it it would help. When uh, our Sammy died, the Santa Monica police told us that, that Snapchat doesn't return their calls mm-hmm. and doesn't help in any of these cases. 
and we've received the same feedback from the DEA. So the, the fact that they help police is not true. The fact that they help police in our case is true. You know why? Because my wife is an Oprah person. Your wife is a, is a personality who's appeared on Oprah, and that's what you mean by, by that, that her profile that's helped right. elevate the story. That's right. Everyone knows what an Oprah person is. So, yes, we took uh, the opportunity to warn our community on Instagram, and the media picked up on it. And then we started going on TV and warning parents. What do you want parents who are listening to know that you didn't know? Limit your kids' social media use the way you might limit television or sweets. Um, it's dangerous, and you need oversight. Right now, we're pushing for Sammy's Law, which would require parent monitoring software on any platform that has minors. Uh, and the ones with our kids on it, like Snapchat, do not allow for this parent monitoring software integration. So you have to get your kids' usernames and their passwords for the devices and the platforms they're on. We've talked, Sam, about how Sammy died. Can you share with our listeners a memory or two that you'd like him to be remembered by? Yes. Sammy was a sweet boy. He loved to fish. He loved football. And he was super smart. Um, and his hope was to be the world's first trillionaire. <laughs> so um, he wanted to go to NYU and then on to study business. And none of those dreams are coming true. Um, the one benefit that from all of this is that he didn't feel any pain. He just faded away from the fentanyl, and we're the ones who suffer. Sam, I appreciate your time. My condolences again. Thank you. Okay, thank you for covering it. Bye-bye. Sam Chapman's 16-year-old son, Sammy, died after taking drugs he bought through Snapchat. Mr. Chapman is a plaintiff in a lawsuit against Snap, Inc., the parent company of Snapchat. We reached Mr. Chapman in Los Angeles. In a statement, a spokesperson from SNAP said, quote, It is devastating that the national fentanyl epidemic has taken the lives of so many people, and we have great empathy for families who have suffered unimaginable losses, unquote. They also told us the app cooperates with law enforcement investigations, including by preserving and disclosing data in response to valid legal requests. And in emergency situations in which there's an imminent threat to life, Snapchat's 24-7 team usually responds within 30 minutes. It's fair to say that Mick Maloney has more experience with kangaroos than the average person. Growing up in the country, the Australian man has come into contact with the marsupials plenty of times. He's even had one as a pet. But on Sunday, he met one that taught him something new about kangaroos by trying to kill him in a river. We reached Mick Maloney in Mildura, Australia. Mick, is this normally how you spend a, a Sunday morning wrestling with a kangaroo? Um, no, not usually. Like, uh, I went for a walk down to the river and the three dogs were with me. I got right down to the edge where there's a whole pile of reeds uh, and mm -hmm. bushes and stuff. And I started doing some stretches and, uh, I looked down and two of my dogs would usually go in the water up to about their chests to drink, uh, were just standing on the edge. And then I realized that one was missing uh -oh. and I kept stretching for probably about a minute and a half, two minutes. And then I looked around and Hutchie, my pup wasn't anywhere to be seen so I sort of adjusted where I was standing and went up to a little bit of higher ground to see if I could find him and I looked down into the river and about 15 meters out there was a the kangaroo you couldn't see the dog the dog was actually being held underwater oh, no. um yeah so that's so I probably this is how I, I actually feel really bad about this because I'm talking two minutes of thereabouts of stretching and then you know 15 seconds of just staring at this kangaroo thinking that's odd and then the dog came up and water was just gushing out of his mouth like he was that was his and he, and he gave this like scream like that was his last breath type thing and that's when it took me i went this is actually happening 
And the funny thing is I had a friend, a Brazilian guy, uh, I told him that this could happen and he didn't believe that it was a thing. He thought kangaroos were cute, furry little creatures that you give a pat to. And uh, so I threw my car keys on the riverbank and then I went to throw my phone and I stopped and went, oh, if I video this, he has to believe me. Like he can't not believe me now. So you get into the water and we're we're seeing this yeah. in the video and then the camera goes <laughs> goes crazy and there's some background noise because what's happening in those moments what are you doing well, the whole way out the whole like 15 meters or so out i was making all kinds of silly noises and just being loud trying to scare it hoping it would let go then i would have got my dog and left but i've got all the way to the kangaroo and that's when i finally got the phone working because i'm technologically inept and i was face to face with it and i thought well, I've threatened it. I've just now I've got to follow through. So I actually slapped it, and I'm telling you now, it's like it was like slapping a brick wall. It was solid as solid can be. Where did you slap it? What part of it? It was with my right hand across the obviously the left side of its head. Mm-hmm. As soon as I did that, it let go of the dog and basically jumped me. Like you see, its arms come out and it, it went for me. So I've. Uh, and, and grapplers and wrestlers will understand this. I've sort of tried to underhook with my right hand to get it around the waist. This is terrifying, sideways. Mick. You're describing <laughs> it like no big deal, but this is terrifying. Well, it, it, it was sort of funny because I no. it took me by surprise. Like this is something. <laughs> this is new to me too. <laughs> so you, did it get any? Did it get any hits in? I think it technically won because, well, I got my dog back, so I'm calling that a win, but I lost a bit of skin off the arms and the shins, and uh, it must have stomped on my right forearm because that was killing me for a couple of days. I don't know if you can see in the video, but its right leg, left as you look at it, it starts to sort of bounce up and down a little bit, and what that is is a kangaroo, what they'll do is they'll rear back onto their tail, and they do a stabbing-style kick, and they've been known to disembowel dogs and stuff like that from... so. I thought, this is about to happen. So I splashed it and then turned. Uh, and then you can't see the rest. But as I turned, I've looked back and it's lunged for me. It missed me by like six inches. Oh, like this, <laughs> it was like, and that's why I was actually laughing as I was running yeah, away. Well, and yeah, you're thought, laughing. I would, yeah. That wouldn't be the sound that was cut, would be coming out of most people's faces. But that that's <laughs> leads to the other extraordinary thing. The photograph, yeah, yeah. the still images of what you were confronted with, I thought it had been photoshopped. But it was a real picture. It's yeah, just, yeah, it was. Um, describe what it looks like. The kangaroo. It, it was about seven foot tall, and they've had some wildlife experts have commented that said it was about eighty kilos. It looked like like we we often joke here, like uh, kangaroos are just deer that have been to prison. Like, you know, came, it was it was jacked, and it was strong. It was like I give it that. It, it, um, but kangaroo um, is pure protein. There is no fat in kangaroo meat. Like this. Yeah, it it looks like the muscles have been drawn on and it's like flexing as it looks at you. It's very menacing. Yeah, it was. (laughs) It put me to shame because I like, you know, I've been doing weights for a long time and (laughs) I thought, well, I'm not taking my shirt off here because I'm going to get outdone by the kangaroo. You've named this encounter Rujitsu. <laughs> You're <Ru-jitsu> playing <laughs> Rujitsu. Well, well I, I didn't name it Rujitsu, but a lot of people <laughs> have, and it's 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 sort of taken off in our gym. Like <laughs> all the little kids, like I've got kids from five years old upwards, just looking at me like, "Oh, you're my hero," and I. Was, <laughs> I'll keep saying, I'll teach you some kangaroo techniques and stuff like that. But um, having a bit of fun with the kids is always good. How is Hachi doing? Hachi, for about 200 metres up the road, coughed up maybe about two litres of water. And I like kept on hitting him in the back, trying to get the more water out. Yeah. Really struggled. But now he's he's dotes on – like this dog has doted on me not, like nothing else. And now he dotes mm-hmm. on me like he sees me and he gets very excited. He knows that you, you saved him. And what happened to the kangaroo? Uh, the last time I saw it, it was standing in the water just staring at me. And I was happy for the, the kangaroo to – Go on its merry way, get, let it get out of the water and let it hop off and join its mob. Well, Mick, I'm glad you and Hachi are okay. Thank you. Yep, no worries at all. Thank you very much for your time. Bye. That was Mick Maloney, who, along with his dog Hachi, had a run-in with a kangaroo this week. We reached Mr. Maloney in Mildura, Australia.
Israel's assault on Gaza follows a time of massive political upheaval for the country. But in the face of Hamas's attacks on Israeli civilians earlier this month, internal divisions have largely been set aside. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his biggest rival, Benny Gantz, are united in wartime resolve. An emergency unity government includes a number of one-time opponents who are now aligned, and U.S. President Joe Biden was in Israel to meet with them. It's a consensus that makes Knesset member Ofer Kassif that much more of an outlier. Mr. Kassif is an Israeli Jewish member of the opposition Hadash Ta'al coalition. Today, he was suspended from the Knesset for 45 days over his comments in opposition to the war. We reach Mr. Kassif in Montevideo, Uruguay. Ofer, Benjamin Netanyahu says the IDF is not responsible for the deadly blast at the Al-Ahli hospital in Gaza yesterday. What do you believe? I don't want to talk about, you know, who's guilty for this specific terrible uh, massacre. I inclined to uh, believe, given the history, uh, that it is the responsibility of uh, Israel, but I'm not sure about it. And so uh, and I want to be honest. Yeah. I think that the most important thing is who's responsible for the ongoing uh, massacre in general. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I have to condemn totally, with no reservation, of course, the terrible slaughter that Hamas carried out against innocent civilians in the south of Israel. The ongoing, terrible, brutal occupation of Israel's doesn't justify such a carnage. Saying that, there's no justification for mm-hmm. the carnage that Israel carries out yeah. at the moment because those who are harmed, assaulted, and killed are mostly innocent civilians. You lost a close friend, I know, in, in the initial Hamas attacks. Your hometown True. was hit by Hamas rocket fire. True. So how do you process all of that, given you know what your stance is and what you're saying? Look, it's not easy. As you said, I lost a very close friend to my, uh, of mine, and not only just uh, that I lost her, but just a short time before she was murdered by Hamas butchers, uh, she wrote to me a WhatsApp message indicating where she was in the security room, hearing the terrorists outside and uh, frightening to death. Unfortunately, she was killed uh, short afterwards with her husband. That hurts. The pain is severe. I know at least another 10 people who were killed or kidnapped, and I I am afraid that after more names will be uh, exposed, I will uh, know even many more. I also have friends in Gaza who are Mm -hmm. under uh, assault now. I have a close friend, Dr. Asadin Abuelayash, that perhaps you remember his name, Mm -hmm. who was uh, three daughters, a niece, were killed by Israel bombarding in uh, Gaza in 2009. I talked to him two days ago, and apparently he lost another 25 people of his Mm -hmm. family in the last last assault on Gaza. This is unbearable. But I do not, I cannot allow myself to act upon rage. Definitely not, not upon revenge. I try to keep my rationality And speaking rationally, the only way to stop the carnage on both sides is a peaceful political solution. There is no military solution. But what does a peaceful solution look like when we're talking about attacks like these, the horrors that you've described? You and so many others have lost loved ones, and we know there are still hostages being held. So what realistically should Israel do? First and foremost, the war should be ended because people, or most vast majority of people who pay the price, Israelis and Palestinians are innocent civilians that only want to live, including babies and small children. Israelis and Palestinians, they should live in security and peace. Uh, war doesn't deliver that. It will only deliver more revenge, more violence. That circle should be ended. It won't deliver security. And I believe that even the Israeli government knows that. Mm -hmm. But uh, it is too busy Mm -hmm. in revenge. As you know, the Canadian government and several other governments around the world have designated Hamas as a terrorist organization. So is peace even possible while Hamas is in power in Gaza? So Hamas consists of two basic groups, the ideological hardcore, which is not that big, and nothing will change its mind and its ideology 
which I despise mm-hmm. and loathe. But the vast majority of the Hamas supporters, including their activists, are driven by the circumstances because they have no hope, no future, and under such dire circumstances, too many people are driven to crazy things. If they had hope, if they knew that the occupation is about to be over, if they knew that an independent state is just around the corner, they would have not supported Hamas, let alone done such crimes. Do you think that solution, the kind of hope that, that you're describing is really possible? History shows that. It's not a theory. It's not, you know, an abstract, hypothetical theory. When the Oslo Accords were agreed upon by the PLO, the Palestine, the Liberation, the, uh, the Palestinian Liberation, Liberation Organization, Organization yeah. and the government in Israel, that was the point where Hamas was at its weakest. Because once people had hope and believed that the uh, occupation is going to be over, they didn't want Hamas. They didn't support Hamas. You can see it many clashes, confrontations, and conflicts, national and other ones in the world. And you can see that every time that hope was uh, was uh, losing, more crazy came into the scene. And I put a lot of responsibility to the carnage that goes on, and including the one that mm-hmm. occurred in the south of Israel, a lot of responsibility on the international community, and especially in the United on the United States, that instead of uh, ending the occupation, pursuing a peaceful solution, it's been doing the opposite. It arms Israel and only ignites more fire. And I beg everyone to stop it because common people are dead. Do you feel, given you know the consensus, the emergency war cabinet Netanyahu has created, <coughs> everything else you've outlined, the history here, do you feel lonely in the Knesset in your, in your views? Do you feel that you can actually affect change and make change given the situation right now? I look, uh, uh, it's not a matter of loneliness. I, 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 we are some, not enough, of course, some uh, uh, members of the Knesset that think alike. There are thousands and thousands of Israelis, uh, citizens, Jews, Palestinians, and others who support our alternative. Unfortunately, the government of Israel and a, lot, a, a big part of the opposition at the moment also supports the persecution of people who think otherwise. Israeli citizens are arrested and inter- interrogated in the last few days just for expressing sympathy for the innocent people of Gaza, not for the butchers of Hamas. I personally face today the ethical committee of the Knesset and was suspended for 45 days Mm -hmm. because of the words I expressed against deeds of the Israeli government. And I will not shut up in the face of what my country is doing, Because not because I'm against my country, exactly the opposite, because this is for the best of my country too. I want my co-patriots, I want my country to live in peace and security. That cannot happen with occupation and violence, neither from the Israeli side nor from the Palestinian side. Ofer, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ofer Kassif is an Israeli Jewish lawmaker with the opposition Hadash Ta'al coalition. We reached him today in Montevideo. Peace and security are two things Vivian Silver has advocated for throughout her life. Now friends and family are praying for her safety. The 74-year-old Canadian Israeli is from Winnipeg, but was on Kibbutz Berry when it was attacked by Hamas militants earlier this month. She's now presumed to be among the 199 people taken from Israel during the attack and held hostage in Gaza. Lynn Mitchell has known Ms. Silver for 60 years. She spoke to the CBC about her friend's advocacy and passion for peacebuilding. She's dedicated her life to the vision of a shared society for Arabs and Jews in uh, in Israel. She is totally committed to nonviolence. Um, and all her life through the Negev Institute for Peace, where she um, worked alongside um, her Arab co-leader, uh, Amal, um, towards developing business projects with Jews and Palestinians in, in, uh, in Israel and um, always towards a shared society. That was her life's work. Peace was her life's work. And even before um, this happened, she was 
still driving cancer patients uh, from Gaza to their treatments in uh, in Israel. How did you find out Vivian was missing? Uh, on October 7th, on the Saturday, I woke up around 5 a.m. and heard what was happening. And I WhatsApped Vivian immediately, and there was no response. So I contacted her kids, and um, they said that they had lost contact with her as of 11 o'clock Israeli time that Saturday morning. And uh, just as an update, as of this morning, we have no new information or confirmation as to where or how she is. She finds herself now most likely in Gaza, and as you say, there is uh, no word on, on where she might be, what condition she might be in. In the context of that, how do you sleep? What are you? What's filling your mind? Oh, well, I mean, in the words of her sister, we do the best we can, and we try to stay away from those dark thoughts, mm-hmm. and we really try to remain hopeful. And and quite honestly, the the help and support of everybody in Canada who's trying to help her, all the support she's she's um, receiving, not just her, but all the hostages uh, from around the world, the efforts of the Canadian government to try and free her and, and uh, the other uh, Canadians involved. Uh, but also, I'm, I'm sure she's thinking, if you're asking that question, please get us out of here, all of us, mm-hmm. and get us out as peacefully as we can. That was Lynn Mitchell, a friend of Vivian Silver, a Canadian-Israeli woman who is presumed to be a hostage of Hamas. Ms. Mitchell was speaking to David Common, host of CBC Toronto's Metro Morning. Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday, India's Supreme Court made a ruling that dashed the hopes of some members of the country's LGBTQ community, a ruling against the legalization of same-sex marriage. It came as a great disappointment to a lot of activists, but not everyone is altogether disappointed. According to one advocate, the road to equality is a long one. Maya Sharma is an LGBTQ activist and writer and was one of 21 petitioners in the Supreme Court case. We reached her in Barada, Gujarat. Maya, you've said this ruling is is not a total loss. Why do you feel that way? Well, uh, because some of the uh, recommendations as suggested by the Chief Justice, who was one of the judges, sort of insisted that certain uh, norms be followed by the state governments, the union government, mm-hmm. and the central government. Uh, since it coming comes right from the Supreme Court, it's meaningful. So it sounds like you say this this is this is going to send a strong message in in some ways across the country but for those who who it was very important to to have a different ruling from the Supreme Court on same-sex marriages to hear that it was going to be legalized across the country what do you say to them because this is a a crushing disappointment to those who wanted that specific part of the ruling to come down Yeah it is disappointing for those who looked at marriage as one way of getting a lot of rights, but uh, there's always a tomorrow. And I think we will go on uh, having to move forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some misfortunes always foretell fortunes, better times. You, you speak uh, uh, like someone who has been in this fight for a long time and knows that the victories that you have won uh, have been hard fought, no doubt. Oh, yes. I cannot imagine, you know, I, I'm an older woman. 70 plus and I cannot imagine that we could actually go to the court and talk of marriage and equality and you know have the police protect us Uh, so it's incredible uh, that we have come to such a uh, state of affairs that Mm -hmm. now we can actually we are together so many of us on the streets. The other measures that did pass 
Just take us through some of those and what they will mean and what kind of difference these laws will make for Indians in the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, for example, uh, one of the things that he said that the natal families will not be able to intervene uh, when the couples uh, decide to live together. And that is a big, a big, big uh, thing for us because families, especially natal families, are considered absolutely safe haven for women and for queer people. And that is not the lived uh, experience of most queer people like us. So that's a big jump. And the other thing is that uh, uh, the fact that there, there was a ruling in Madras uh, High Court about uh, conversion therapy will not be acceptable and not allowed or banned. Do you think that local authorities and in you know more remote regions will actually follow these new laws? Well, you know, uh, I think it takes a lot of time for these things to reach. Uh, for now, for us as activists, it is our work perhaps to also create awareness. But fortunately, even the Supreme Court has ordered that uh, the public at large, including the police, will be sensitized. We always live in hope. So let's hope that this will make a big difference. Many advocates, though, are, are, are not feeling as, as you do. We talked about their deep disappointment but they, they think it's taken too long. They don't want to wait a- any longer. So what do you say to to young families in particular who wanted to, to hear different things from the Supreme Court? They wanted same-sex to be legalized, same-sex marriage to be legalized. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, ultimately, when you conceive of marriage, it comes with the baggage of great inequality and uh, very distinct roles. And it helps us plan better to conceive of better ways of uh, partnerships, of the, equality. The, the the institution of marriage is, is something you don't subscribe to. Uh, no, mm-hmm. I feel it's very unequal. Uh, and we are socialized to behave in a particular way when you get into, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a box like a marriage. You know, it's already mm-hmm. patterned on certain uh, but that would require behavior such, patterns. That would require such a huge shift. I mean, internationally certainly, but also in India, where marriage is is quite important culturally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, it is important culturally. But then India is such a pluralistic country. There are many kinds of families. Mm-hmm. We have matriarchal uh, systems also. There are single women, and anyway, people are living in partnerships, and uh, in some senses, they have recognized trans women and trans, uh, you know, assist uh, women living together, which sort of is based on the pattern of heterosexual norms. Mm -hmm. And that is acceptable. So uh, while acknowledging the disappointment, even I am disappointed, but then uh, that we have come such a long way, uh, perhaps there's still a brighter day tomorrow to look forward to. Are you tired of fighting, Maya? No, not at all. (laughs) I mean, now we have a whole community, uh, so there's still reason enough to go on. <laughs> I just wonder how did this, how does this ruling stack up when you look back at all the milestones throughout your your long career and your long fight? How does this decision fit into that timeline? As we go along, there's still much, there's many many things that can be altered and improved. So this is the way it is. I think we cannot. Uh, at least at, at the age that I am, I recognize that uh, the entire uh, system cannot be changed. Uh, you know, I wish it could. It would be a dream come true that we could have an entirely new set of people with, uh, you know, with ideals within our reach. But that's not the way it is. And that gives us enough energy uh, to go on. Maya, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. That was Maya Sharma, who's been an activist for LGBTQ rights in India for decades. We reached her in Bharata, Gujarat.
At Church Point in Digby County, Nova Scotia, stands the largest wooden church in North America, and it is in dire need of repair. The former Eglise Sainte-Marie is in such rough shape that just months ago it looked like it would have to be demolished. But then the Acadian community got some good news. An anonymous donor had offered $10 million to restore it to its former glory. Seemed like divine intervention. But any hopes that were raised were quickly dashed when that donor ghosted on the project, cutting off contact with those involved. Pierre Como is the president of Société Edifice Sainte-Marie de la Pointe. We reached him in Matagan, Nova Scotia. Pierre, if we can go all the way back to the beginning, back in April, you get word that an anonymous donor is ready to make a pretty big donation. Did you think this is it? This is what we've been we've been hoping for. Well, uh, most certainly that that, that uh, anonymous donor was uh, expressing that he would put in all the money needed for repairs and maintenance to the structure, which uh, at that time was estimated at mm-hmm. around $10 million. If I can quote a religious term, we thought our prayers had been answered. Yeah. So was relief the feeling you were, you were feeling in that moment? R- relief and joy. What it what it meant was that the building would be repaired and preserved for the time to come. So you said he, so that lets us know that it was a man, this donor. But they do wish to to remain anonymous. But the, do you yes. know? Can you give us a, any more detail about who this person is or why they wanted to initially offer this much money and this help? The uh, the person uh, is from Ontario. Uh, we understand, although we don't know any details, that he may have uh, done similar uh, offers and projects in the past. Did at any point when you heard, you know, $10 million, they were willing to offer that much money, did you think it was a prank? Well, we uh, I'm the president of the society that... Uh, was uh, tried to save the structure, and uh, the archdiocese were the ones negotiating with the person. It's my understanding that the negotiations reached the stage of uh, preparing and discussing draft memoranda of understanding for the uh, for the funding of the project. So uh, I understand also that uh, he had they had checked out uh, the uh, the donor, and it was in their opinion, a serious offer. So what do you think happened? Why did this donor and all that money disappear? At, at this end, we have no idea why he, why he suddenly stopped uh, talking, stopped answering phone calls, and that uh, we really, really don't know because uh, things appeared to be on track for a successful uh, conclusion mm-hmm. to the to the offer. So that initial relief that you talked about, and now, I mean, disappointment is one way to describe it, I suppose. How, how are people in your community reacting? People in the community are very, very disappointed and discouraged because in our wildest dreams, we had not anticipated that the request for proposals would come up with an offer of this kind. We thought that people might offer to buy it, buy it and either repair it or demolish it uh, mm-hmm. it was that's that's what we uh, we thought might happen the fact that there was an offer to repair it was uh, was brought great great joy the archbishop came in the area after the offers and he held three public meetings at uh, the local churches and uh, they were very well attended and uh, the major- vast majority of the people at those meetings were in favor of accepting the offer and moving forward. For people who haven't had a chance to see this building, just paint a picture for our listeners of Eglise Samarie. It's a wooden building with uh, wooden shingles, wood, uh, wood roof. It's most definitely the largest wooden church in North America and possibly in the world, although there's one in Finland uh, that gives it a good uh, a good run for the money. <laughs> I think it depends how you measure them. So th- the fact this church was built a little over 100 years ago by our forefathers over, over a two-year period. Uh, so it's been so, through so some it, things. Oh, yes, it's, it's, got, it's got history. 
It's one thing to see photographs, Pierre, uh, of the structure, but how do you feel when you step inside the doors? Oh, the uh, the, the the grandeur and the ornate uh, finishings inside are are very uh, very impressive. It's uh, it's a source of pride to the uh, the Acadian community in this end of the province, which is a minority in the province of Nova Scotia. But uh, it, uh, we're attached to it because of its history, how it was built, and how, how majestic it looks. If you could speak to that initial person, though, who, who offered that $10 million and then disappeared, what would you want them to know? I'd want them to know what they did to our emotions and... Uh, the uh, the joy we had and now the disappointment uh, and the fact that the building faces an extremely un- uncertain future. If that money doesn't come, what does that future look like? Uh, it looks to me as if uh, the uh, the building may face uh, demolition. Neither the local area nor the archdiocese have the financial resources to uh, repair it. Well, Pierre, we'll see. Thank you for your time. Oh, you're quite welcome. Uh, call any time. We, yeah. All we can do now is, is talk about it. Maybe we'll speak again. Thank you, Pierre. You're quite welcome. Pierre Como is the president of Société Edifice Sainte-Marie-de-la-Pointe. We reached him in Matagan River, Nova Scotia. For nearly 150 years, Shadrach Minkin's tombstone looked pretty much like all the others in Montreal's Mount Royal Cemetery, but his story was singular. Mr. Minkins escaped slavery, only to become the first runaway arrested in New England under the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law before a dramatic courtroom rescue and journey to Montreal along the Underground Railroad. Yesterday, a new plaque telling his story was unveiled. Historian and hip-hop artist Ali Njai made a podcast about Mr. Minkins' life for Radio Canada called Résistance. He also commissioned the plaque. You may know him by by his stage name, Webster. We reached him in Quebec City. Ali, what will visitors see now when they come to the cemetery, if I were to walk there at the site of Shadrach Minkin's grave? Yeah, you would get to uh, to his grave and see a plaque in front of the tombstone um, that tells the, the story of Shadrach Minkin's. It's a commemorative plaque, yeah. so as uh, people might understand what was going on with, with this man and his uh, incredible life. And we're going to get into into that incredible life. I don't know how you fit it all on a uh, on a commemorative plaque, but we'll 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 try to get it all in in this conversation. <laughs> but if we go back a bit, how did you first learn about Shadrach Minkins? Well, I learned about him uh, through my conversations with historian Frank McKee who uh, digged, uh, dig, uh, dug into, extensively into uh, Black Montreal uh, history. So afterward, uh, I read about Shadrach Minkins in Gary Collison's book, Shadrach Minkins. And uh, this is how we decided to do a podcast with uh, Radio-Canada about his life. So uh, with my father and producer, uh, Marie-France Abastado, we went to Virginia mm-hmm. and retraced the steps uh, of Shadrach Minkins from Norfolk to Boston, uh, through Cambridge, Concord, yeah. Vermont, uh, to Montreal. Well, we'll go through that that path. We'll follow along with you as well in just a moment. But when you when you first started learning about him, and, and you go to the cemetery to Mount Royal Cemetery, what did you see there before your plaque? I mean, what kind of marker is there? Was there there? Well, uh, there is a tombstone, mm-hmm. but the writings have been weathered by time. So you cannot even make the name of mm-hmm. Shadrach Mekins and his children children's that have been buried, buried there. So you, we know it's there because of the records, but you, you, you cannot tell that it's there. So the, the plaque serves as, as a marker to be able to identify uh, uh, much easily uh, his, uh, his grave. So you and your father retrace his steps. You know that he's able to to escape, to free himself, and make his way to Boston. But then in 1850, 
as if what he'd experienced was not extraordinary enough. There are more extraordinary developments. What happened? Yeah, so uh, Shadrach Minkins uh, self-emancipated from slavery, uh, from Norfolk, moved to Boston. There he was arrested under uh, the Fugitive Slave Act. So was brought to the courthouse uh, to be sent back to slavery. But you have to understand that back then, uh, African Bostonians uh, was a they, they, they were a radical community, mm-hmm. you know, lived in Beacon Hill and support, uh, supported each other. You know, they had guns at, at, at the door mm-hmm. because if people wanted to come and send them back to slavery, they will fight. So when they learned about Shadrach Minkins who was arrested, they just stood their rows. They stepped into the courthouse and they mobbed the courthouse. They took Shadrach Minkins and sent him on, on his way to Montreal through the Underground Railroad. They freed him. So they... It, they- pulled him out of the courthouse and made sure he could remain free. Yeah, exactly. That was a, what they call the slave rescue, you know. And this is so important because we talk about self-emancipation. We talk about people who took back their own uh, agency. But we talk about, also we talk about the community who decided to stand against slavery, no matter what would have been the cost. So they went against the law and they they. They, they, they went in for, for, for justice and for community, you know. And this is an example of radicality that people need to, to understand and be inspired by. He makes his way to Montreal through the Underground Railroad. What kind of life did he build for himself there? Well, you know, in, in Canada, we always glorify our role into the, uh, to the Underground Railroad. You know, like the end of the Underground Railroad and now enslaved people are free and everything's merry, you know. But the thing is, people like when they arrived here, they lived through systemic racism, you know. Uh, they couldn't do uh, any type of jobs. And uh, Shadrach Minkin's life when he arrived here uh, is kind of like the same for many uh, African Canadians back then. You didn't have a lot of opportunities. So uh, as a... Uh, as for job opportunities, uh, he worked in restaurants and afterward became a, a barber, white washer, owned a restaurant. So uh, these were the, the kind of the four types of jobs you could have in the middle of the 19th century in Canada or in North America. So it's kind of typical of what African Canadians uh, would have done to survive back then. I saw this this picture Uh, accompanying one of the stories covering the plaque. Uh, And it's a big group of people all around, standing around the plaque, uh, smiling, beaming faces. What did that moment feel like to you? Well, you know, I I was uh, speaking to a friend just before you you, you called, Mm -hmm. and I was saying how this, uh, this picture is historic. Because for people who don't know about Montreal life, these are all people are so important for the, the for the struggle, you know, you have historians, you have activists, all people gathered around the the, the grave of Shadrach Minkins, and it's so inspiring to see all those people who gathered for Shadrach Minkins, you know, to honor him and make sure that his legacy is still alive. Ali, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. Ali Ndai is a historian and hip hop artist known as Webster. We reached him in Quebec City. Now it's time for another episode of our popular segment, Intricacies of Nautical Law in England. Okay, tonight we have a bit of a departure from the usual intricacies of nautical law in England format that you're familiar with. Instead of going to the listener mailbag, which, as usual, is overflowing with questions about nautical law in England, I have a question of my own. This this is highly irregular, but, but I'll allow it. Thank you. I, mm. I, I really appreciate it. Now, my question has to do with ongoing maintenance work on the Millennium Bridge in London. Which is governed by Section 36 of the Port of London Thames Bylaws. Are you sure? I thought it was. I thought it was section thirty-five. <laughs> Am I sure? Well, so sorry to laugh. Not sorry at all, actually. But uh, section thirty-five, Chris, is related to barges. Oh, that's 
That's very embarrassing. Mm. That's, I'm sorry. Section 36 then. Okay. Um, here, here's my question. Uh, this week, London residents have observed what appears to be a bale of hay dangling from the Millennial Bridge. Why? Might that bale of hay actually, Chris, be a bundle of straw? Absolutely not. Ab- absolutely. Well, maybe. Well, is it conspicuous? Mm, very. Then you will find your answer in Clause 36-2 of the Port of London Thames Bylaws, which reads, mm-hmm. quote, when the headroom of a span of a bridge is reduced from its usual limits but not closed to navigation, the person in control of the bridge must suspend from the center of that span by day a bundle of straw large enough to be conspicuous and by night a white light, end quote. I see. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, to warn any boats or ships mm-hmm. passing under the bridge that people have been working underneath it so not to bang into anything or anyone. Exactly. How old is this bylaw? Like, is a, is a bundle of straw really the best alarm system in 2023? Okay, double-barreled questions. It's Never a good idea, right? No, Forgi- we'll forgive you, right? But to answer those questions in order, it dates back to the early 20th century. And also, do you have a better idea? <laughs> I mean, than a bundle of straw? There are so many... Uh, no. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.